Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Colossians chapter 3. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 3. <clears throat> Excuse me. Allow me to wet my whistle. Well, we'll actually be looking at verse 15 today, but we're going to read for 15, 16, and 17 as we move along through Paul's exhortations and the application of the truths that he'd set forth in the earlier chapters. So, beginning at verse 15, there we read the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Colossae, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray that you'd bless us now as we uh, seek to learn your word and to have it in our hearts and minds. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations, the thoughts of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Verse 15, it's a directive that Paul gives. It's a command, actually, it's an imperative. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. I think I left those words out when I copied out the text. In one body. That's very important. I apologize. Um, I created a textual variant in my notes. Okay. Uh, but the text is, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, um, unto which you were called in one body. And be ye thankful, is how the old King James says it. That's important because that ye tips us off that Paul's writing to individuals, but he's writing to the church collectively. When it has those plural commands, which is what we have here, uh, it's given to the body of Christ. And uh, we have to do these things individually, but he's talking about doing these things corporately as a body. Keep in mind, he wrote to the church. He did write to certain individuals. You know, we have First and Second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Uh, but he wrote to the churches, and often the commands... In the churches, they're to the individuals, obviously. The congregation was made up of individuals. And if individuals aren't doing what the commands dictate, then the congregation isn't doing it either. And the same way in those personal letters, we could say that when he wrote to Timothy, it's interesting, because Greek, just like Old English, has thee and thou for singular when you're talking to one person, and ye, you, and your when you're talking to more than one. Greek has the same thing, and so does Hebrew. So that's why it's a good idea, whatever translation you're using, keep, keep one of those old King James Bibles around because it'll tip you off sometimes that, oh, he's talking here to an individual. I've mentioned this before. When Jesus said to Peter, he said, Satan has desired you that he might sift you as wheat. Well, that's plural. He wanted, the devil wanted all of the apostles. But then Jesus said, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail thee not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. That's the old King James Version. 
But it's important because we find, we learn from, oh, look, the intercession of the Lord Jesus Christ is personal and individual. Undoubtedly, our Lord prays for his whole church, as we see in John 17 and elsewhere. But when he intercedes for us as our great high priest, that statement he made to Peter shows us, ah, he prays for us as individuals. So it's nice to know that your Savior Jesus intercedes for you. So those singular and plural distinctions can be very important. And it is interesting when Paul wrote to individuals, like in First and Second Timothy, uh, toward the end he uses those plural pronouns because he recognized Timothy wasn't going to be the only one reading that letter. So there's just some interesting uh, change-offs. Read through the uh, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in the Old King James, and you'll notice the playoff of singular and plural. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. When ye pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven. So you have singular and plural. So important distinctions. This he's saying, y'all, we could say, if we were in different parts of the country, or different parts of Shasta County, maybe. Um, y'all let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Okay? Hearts there is plural. Each one of you individually, but corporately. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Now, that word rule is interesting. In Greek, it's not a common word. It actually has with it the idea of the umpire over the games. Now, we think of umpires in baseball. They stand behind. They call the, they call the shots, you might say. You know, uh, If it's a strike or it's a ball or whatever. And sometimes they get yelled at by the, the fans because they don't agree with the call. But it's up to the umpire. Remember this, the, And the peace of God is to be the umpire in our hearts. I remember the story of the three umpires that were talking after a game, and they were kind of bragging a little bit, and one of them said, he said, you know, I call them as I see them. And the second one looked at him and said, well, I call them as they are. And the third one looked at them both and said, they ain't nothing till I call them. Well, that's what the peace of God is supposed to be in your heart. It's supposed to be the governing, deciding factor. Now, that doesn't mean that whatever you feel good about or peaceful about, you can do. The peace of God, note that. It's not your idea what peace ought to be, okay? It's the peace of God. It's the peace that he gives, and it's the peace concerning him. So there's a subjective element to the idea of peace, and there's also an objective, okay? And it's the peace of God. Subjectively, it is something we feel in our hearts. But objectively, that peace exists, whether sometimes whether we feel it or not. But the peace that God has declared to us covenantally, the terms of our surrender, you might say, are that we would come to Christ for forgiveness of sins, and that God would then work in us and accept us as his children. It's a really gracious surrender document. You know, we always speak of the New Testament as a, a covenant. It is. It's also a surrender document. You know, because when one nation conquers another, if you remember at the end of World War II, well, some of you might remember that, but uh, if you've read about it, if you're younger, Japan and Germany both were required to surrender unconditionally and uh, they did because we had completely and totally defeated them and so the terms of their surrender was basically saying that the allies we owned them 
One of the reasons why the Japanese, generally speaking, you have to speak in generalities when we're talking about nations, generally love America is because they know that at the end of World War II, we could have enslaved them. We could have taken away their emperor. We could have destroyed their culture. We could have simply built factories there and made them all slaves. We didn't do that. By God's grace, I think it's because the gospel had influenced at that time our culture in wonderful ways. We went back in. We, we built the factories that we had bombed. We rebuilt the uh, iron mills. We rebuilt their roads, their railroad system, uh, everything. We handed them back their country. We didn't remove the emperor. We did ask him to renounce his deity, and he did do that because they were under the impression that he was descended from the gods, and we thought that needs to stop because that played a large part in some of their foolishness that led to the war. But we handed them back their country. And what we did, instead of handing them chains, we stretched our hand out in friendship to them, and they took it. They didn't have a lot of choice. The terms of their surrender were unconditional. We did the same thing for Germany. Whether the Germans love us or anybody else or themselves is probably up for debate sometimes, okay? But we did rebuild their country, and we protected them from being completely engulfed by the Soviet Union. And uh, eventually they were freed again there. But the point is, is that the new covenant that we're under actually is a surrender document where we come to Christ and we give up. And that's really important. And then just in the same way, if you're, if you're, again, to use the analogy, an illustration from World War II, uh, if you remember General MacArthur, he was sent to Japan, and basically he was the governor of Japan. He made sure that the uh, old war-rattling element didn't get a chance to start trouble and that things went smoothly. And he also had some interesting things. If you, know, if you read about it, it's really a wonderful time. If you've never read about the history of World War II after it ended, they were, particularly what the Allies did, uh, quite interesting. General MacArthur told the American troops that when you're in Japan, unless you're an MP, and they were set, they were the military police to keep our soldiers under control. Our soldiers, were, when they occupied Japan, not the first day or two, but once the occupation was established, he told them, you're not to, you're not to carry guns. You're not to go armed among the Japanese people. He said, we don't want them to see us in that way. And they did. Can you imagine that? Now, they, like I say, they didn't do that right the first. Okay, First, they made sure that everything, you might say all the fires, brush fires, were put out, and there weren't little radical elements that wanted to still kill Americans. Okay, There was some of that, but they dealt with that. A lot of it had to do with the Japanese people were terrified of Americans because of what they'd been told by the propaganda. They were told that the Americans were going to destroy them and do horrible things to them. There were Japanese women that committed suicide when they saw American soldiers because they were so afraid. And that's why General MacArthur said, we've got to stop that. We want them to not be afraid of us. This is why God comes to us with peace. And he lets us know, if you come to faith in Christ, the terms of surrender is that God will forgive you and now not just treat you as pardoned rebels, which you are, but he will receive you as his, as his very own sons and daughters. You belong to him. And so he grants you a privilege that is just unbelievable. And so we have this relationship of peace. 
And what Paul is telling the Colossians is let that rule in your hearts and in your minds. Let that be the governing principle in your thinking and in your actions. You say, well, how do we implement this? In the epistle to the Philippians, Paul actually talks about this idea of peace. And he speaks of the importance of understanding how it's to be implemented. So in Philippians 4, beginning at verse 6 through 9, we have there, you'll notice there's a command, and then there's a promise given. All right, it starts off at verse 6, it says, Be anxious for nothing. That's an imperative. The old King James is, Be careful for nothing. And what that used to mean was, Don't be full of care. Okay? Now, you know, we read it and... Uh, we go, be, oh, so I'm not supposed to be careful with anything? Okay, well, I'll, I'll try to do that next time I'm driving. I won't be careful. No, 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 no. Be careful when you're driving, all right? What it means, don't be full of care. But anxious is what it means. Be anxious for nothing. We're told in Hebrews to cast all our, all our anxieties upon him because he cares for us. The old King James has, cast all your cares upon him for he careth for you. Uh, so this word anxiety is a good, good word. We're told, be anxious for nothing. That's a command. God does not want you to be worrying about things. Worry is misspent prayer. If you think about it, if you're going around worrying about stuff and not praying about it, you're just praying to yourself. Worry can be a form of idolatry. And if you're worrying... You're not going to see things change. Worry doesn't change anything. Jesus, remember when he told the disciples, which of you by taking thought, meaning worry, can add one cubit to your stature? In other words, which of you by worrying can add, add a foot and a half to your height? Okay, I think some of them might have been short. But um, he says worrying doesn't change anything. It's like if you're sitting in front of the washing machine wondering why your TV dinner isn't getting cooked, you know, or whatever it is you, you, you put in there to, to have it come out. You know, maybe you put a roast or something, and it's just not working right, you know, uh, because it's not the right thing. Worry doesn't do anything except make a mess of things, including yourself, okay? So there's a command here. This, God commands us things for our good. You know, if you look at the Ten Commandments, some people look at it like, well, those are all the things we're not allowed to do because I guess that God doesn't want us to have fun. Well, if you think, you know, all that stuff is fun, then you're pretty foolish because it ends in death and shame. But when he says, don't be anxious, God tells us this for our own good. Be anxious for nothing. Then he gives the antidote. All right, if I'm not supposed to worry, then what am I supposed to do? And we see again, if you're mis misusing this capacity for prayer, stop that and start praying. That's what he says. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. So he's saying if you're a worry wart, as we use in, in colloquial speech, stop it. Now, how do you know when it's time to pray? Well, if you feel that you're worrying. You know, don't beat up on yourself if you find you're worrying about things. Just realize, oh, you know what? I need to open the window to heaven now. And I need to take this worry, these anxieties that I have, and I need to just start praying about them. And you're probably going to have some anxious feelings while you're praying. 
particularly if you're in trouble or things have come about in your circumstances, you know, financially or relationship-wise or health-wise, you're going to have that base with, it seems like worry. Turn it into prayer. Cast all your anxieties upon him. God doesn't condemn you for having them. It's what you do with them, okay? You know, it's like Luther said, you can't stop the crows from landing in the tree or the birds, but you can't stop them from building nests. So in this life, we do have trouble. Jesus even said, in the world you shall have tribulation. You know the second half of that verse, I hope. He said, but be of good cheer. Be happy. Be happy. Why? What did he say? I have overcome the world. So whatever is causing you anxiety, you don't need to feel like, oh, I'm going to be crushed by it. It can't hurt you, no matter what it is, even if it's something going to kill you. To be absent from the body is present with the Lord. Okay? You don't have to be afraid even of death because Christ has conquered it for you. But we're told to be anxious for nothing, but in everything. Note that. Everything. Not just the things that you think, well, I can't handle that, but this other stuff I don't need to pray about because you know I'm, I'm in control there. Uh-uh. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. That means you believe God's going to hear your prayer because his promise is true. Let your requests be made known to God. Okay, That's, again, an imperative. Do this. And then there's a promise. So that's the command. Don't worry. Pray. And here's the promise. If you'll do what the promise says, or excuse me, what the command is, this is a conditional promise. You know, some people say, well, I thought all God just does everything for us no matter what. Yes, he does. He works in you, though, to will and to do of his good pleasure. When he gives you a command and then a promise, the promise is conditioned upon the command being fulfilled. He'll give you grace to fulfill the command. And even then, you can't brag and say, well, look what I did out of my own power and strength. Uh-uh. It's God that works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So if you're able to give your anxieties to God and turn them into prayers, you still give God, Lord, thank you that you delivered me from worrying. Thank you. you did this, Lord. I didn't do it. Thank you that you helped me to remember what your word says. And I thank you, Lord, that I can present these anxieties that I have to you. God gets all the glory for everything. This is not a self-help program. But there are conditional promises. And so if you want the promise, you'd better ask God to fulfill the condition. And if you're a worrier, worrier then you need to go to him and say, Lord, deliver me from this sin of worry. I'm tired of the idolatry of me just churning this stuff over and over in my mind and getting nowhere. It's just eating me alive, Lord. Please help me not to worry. So open the window to heaven and say, Lord, I'm giving this to you. And I've learned this myself. After you do that, ask God to help you to not play tug-of-war with him. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Lord, I give you this. You know, sometimes I'll, to illustrate this, I'll have like a book and I'll hand it to somebody, and it's, you know, because we're talking about worrying. I'll say, here, please, if you're my friend, take this burden I have, take it. And they'll take the book, and I'm holding on as tight as I can on purpose. And I go, please take it. I thought you were my friend. I thought you said, you know, you love me. Why won't you take this? Why won't you? And they're like, well, they say, you won't let go of it. Thank you. There's the point. Pretty simple, isn't it? Your first prayer, you're going to have to probably have more than one. Lord, please take these anxieties. Please work in these circumstances and situations. Prayer number two, which maybe just put a comma there, not a period. It's kind of an extension of the first request. 
and give me grace to let go of these things and to trust you to work. That doesn't mean you do nothing. It means you're in a position actually to do some things effectively. Like the old word efficacious. You're able to have efficacious prayer. It means it brings about an effect in you. So when we're getting rid of anxieties and giving them to the Lord, cast your cares upon the Lord. Literally, that means throw them. The worst thing you can do if you're throwing a rock is to have a leather strap or a piece of rope or string tied to it. What happens? Sometimes it comes back bonks you right between the eyes, right? You know, if you're going to throw something, cast it. You know, here you've got this beautiful lake of God's love and care. And he says, you go ahead and cast your cares there. God will take care of it. But you're hanging on to it. It's gonna, it might come back and bonk you a good one, okay? And that sometimes happens. Learn to let go of things. So your first prayer is, God, please take this. Your second prayer is, Lord, please help me to let go of this. It doesn't mean you become careless. It means that you trust him to work. And when you feel in your heart that you're still having worries, don't beat up on yourself. You've got a gracious God who loves you. You've got a Savior who is your high priest. He understands. It says, He's not one who can't be moved with the feeling of our infirmities. He knows what it's like. So give it to him. And if you feel like, well, I'm kind of hanging out, then give it to him again. You know, it's like David's prayer created me a clean heart, you know. How many times do you have to pray that? Well, didn't he give you a clean heart? Yeah, he did. And then I, I mucked it up. I got, a, you know, got it dirty again. So I had to go and ask God, give me another clean heart. I messed up the one you gave me. So it's important for us to keep going to God in prayer. In everything, by prayer and supplication. Supplication is a specific request, okay? General prayer, pray for things in general. Your general needs, pray for in general. Your specific needs and the needs of others, pray for specifically. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. It's always about Jesus. But note that the peace of God... It passes all understanding. In other words, you're not going to be able to figure this out necessarily. Sometimes the people around you aren't going to be able to figure it out. It's like, okay, I know all the stuff you're going through. Why are you happy? You shouldn't be happy with all the problems you have. You know, Paul, think of him. He's writing to the Thessalonians, tell them, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. It's very clear in the prison epistles that Paul is telling them to be happy, to rejoice. And yet he was in chains in Rome and soon he was going to be put to death and yet he had the joy of the Lord as Nehemiah said the joy of the Lord is your strength so the, the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus then he says finally brethren so it's just to do this and then he makes an application further finally brethren so if you're not going to have your mind eaten up with worry, what are you going to do with your mind? Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are noble or honest, whatsoever things are just, that means right before God and man, whatsoever things are pure, and this follows right along, whatsoever things are lovely, what the, the beautiful things that God has done and is doing in the creation, in the lives of his people, the glories and the goodness of God. Whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, 
if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise or anything praiseworthy, think on these things. Now, we've been told about the peace of God, and this is a command here again, and it's conditional. Do these things. And what does he say? Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, do. So Paul's saying, I've set an example for you. The apostles do that for us. He says, if you'll do this, and the God of peace shall be with you. So we've got the peace of God in verse 7. And then in verse 9, we have the God of peace. It's the same. But it's the God of peace. He's the one that gives peace. So Paul is speaking of a practical, experiential peace that is conditional upon obedience to God's commands to us to stop worrying and to start praying. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Stop worrying, start praying. And if you'll start praying, you will stop worrying because your capacity for worry, and if you go, oh, I worry a lot, you have an untapped capacity for prayer. That's just a misspent gift of God. So take that gift that he's given to you that you've been misusing and praying to yourself, even though you didn't know that's what you were doing. Start praying to God and watch what happens. You need to pray. Your brothers and sisters in Christ need your prayers. There's people that need prayer. The kingdom of God moves forward by prayer. You know the old saying, the saints rule the world by their prayers. If you look at the situation in the world today, it looks like a lot of Christians must not be praying very much. Okay, that falls on me and I think probably most of us here. There's an unconditional peace, though, that is ours in Christ that's always there whether we feel it or not. It's not about our feelings, it's about God's word. This is the peace that Christ spoke of in John 17, 27. It's also spoken of in Romans 5, 1. In John 14, 27, Jesus said, My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. In Romans 5.1, Paul says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't say if you feel it or if you're doing everything right. Being justified by faith, that is the righteousness of Christ given to us by faith alone. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The war is over. The unconditional surrender document, it's been signed by the blood of Jesus Christ on your behalf. So you're now in a relationship of peace with God. You may not always feel it, but that's the truth. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, we saw there, to which you are called in one body, Paul says, okay? Let the peace of God umpire or rule in your hearts, okay? Um, unto which you were called. God, when he called you, he called you to peace with himself and with his people in one body. So we want to make sure that we're honoring God in that. Remember the, in Proverbs, the six things and the, the seven things that God hates? It says in Proverbs 6, 16, these six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue. These are things that God hates. Hands that shed innocent blood, and heart that deviseth wicked imaginations. We need to deal with our thought lives. Feet that be swift in running to mischief. 
You know, we shouldn't be quick to, to run after things that are wrong. A false witness that speaketh lies. I want to tell the truth. But then the last thing, number seven, and I think it's the crowning thing, the things that God hates, number seven is, and he that soweth discord among brethren. That's what slander and gossip and whispering does. You know, it says in, uh, in Proverbs that a whisperer separateth chief friends. You know, you don't have to necessarily believe it, but sometimes, you know, say, and by the way, the word devil in Greek, diabolos, it means slander or slanderer. Ha diabolos, the devil, means the slanderer. When Paul wrote about the older women, they were not to be slanderers. He actually says they're not to be devils, okay? Uh, that's the word, that's what it means. And so we don't want to be doing the devil's work. It's just as sinful to listen to slander as it is to speak it. So if someone comes to you and, well, you know what I heard, or, you know, and I mentioned this before and everybody I think is aware of this. Generally, people don't come or the devil doesn't come to you and, and say, hey, I have some slander. You want to hear it? Because most of us go, no. But can I share a prayer request with you? Well, sure. What is, well, you know what I heard about brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so. It's like, well, this isn't a prayer request, man. You're just trying to tell me some juicy bit of gossip that you heard, okay? So we're to avoid that. He that sows discord among brethren. We should study for the peace of the church and have a good opinion of each other and speak well of each other. We all know we're a bunch of sinners, okay? I don't have to tell you that. You already know it. But we, what we need to recognize is that God's at work in our brothers and sisters. He's doing good things. Have you been able to see it in any of them? You ought to be able to speak well of the people of God in spite of their shortcomings. And hopefully they'll speak well of you in spite of your shortcomings, okay? And then note, the, the crown of this, as be ye thankful. So you're, let the peace of God rule in your hearts in that one body unto which you've been called. And then you're to become thankful. You're to be thankful. I love it in the uh, Latin translation, not the Latin Vulgate that uh, you hear about, but in the Tremalius translation. For thankful, he uses the, the, the phrase, uh, benefici estote. And it's like, that means to be generous you know the greek word is uh eucharistoi which means to give thanks but i think that um actually theodore Beza is the one that translated that into latin in his new testament that phrase benefice estote i think what he was getting at is be thankfully generous it's one thing to go around saying well i'm very thankful it's another thing to have the thanks transform you so that you're kind to other people. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. In everything give thanks. Say, so what about bad things? God's going to turn it for good. You don't have to thank him for bad things as bad things, but you can thank him in bad circumstances that he's going to turn it to your good according to his promise in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. All things work together for good. That doesn't say there, the good things work together for good. Okay, It's all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. So in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And so how do we understand that second part? This is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. You mean my bad circumstances are the will of God? Yeah, yeah, they can be. 
but it also means giving thanks in those bad circumstances is the will of God. It's a two-edged sword there. All right? you're, wherever you are, you're in God's plan and purpose. And he does ordain and allow sometimes bad things to happen to his people. Suffering is part of the Christian life. If you don't believe me, right before Psalms is a book called the Book of Job. Okay? I'd encourage you to read it. If you think, like, well, I'm a Christian. All I expect is prosperity and wealth and health and happiness. Okay, that's not Christianity, whatever religion it is. Okay, that's a lie being told in the neo-apostolic movement and the prosperity gospel, but that's not what's in the Bible. There is suffering in the Christian life, and even in the midst of suffering, you can still give thanks to God. He's going to turn it for your good and his glory. You can trust him for that. You know, God has called us, it says in, in uh, Revelation, that Christ has washed us by his blood and has made us kings and priests unto God. Well, as priests, we have a sacrifice. And in Hebrews chapter 13, uh, verse 15 and 16, it says, By him, therefore, that is by Jesus Christ, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. And let's say, well, what, how exactly do we do that? That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. See, we ought to be a thankful people. As priests unto God, we have a sacrifice. Note that. Let us offer the sacrifice of praise unto God continually while you're in church and when you're by yourself, okay? Uh, sometimes these little bulletins that uh, Kathy makes, I take it out during the week. Or the songs, the best place to have is not on a bulletin, have it in your heart. It's nice just to sing songs to the Lord. That's the very next thing we're going to look at. You know, singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. So by him, let's offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. Praise God for the name of Jesus. Hallelujah, man. We've got a savior from sin. His name shall be called Jesus, Yeshua, which means salvation in Hebrew. For he shall save his people from their sins. That's a pretty good reason to be thankful. Wait a minute, for the likes of me. Sometimes what God does to make you thankful, he'll show you your sin. One... one uh, Puritan writer said, if God showed us our sin all at once, the depth of it, the ugliness of it, we'd probably fall into despair. Maybe ultimate, just, you know, we wouldn't be able to move because we'd be so ashamed of ourselves. He shows it to us little by little. He'll show us, wow, I really am corrupt. I really do need the Holy Spirit to help me. I do need to be sanctified. I'm so thankful for the blood of Jesus Christ It was offered for me. Lord, please forgive me my sins. Please nullify the effects that my foolishness has had on other people's lives. Please don't let other people stumble because of my, not stupidity, sinfulness. We don't sin because we're stupid. We get stupid because we sin, okay? And so we shouldn't say, well, I was just stupid. No, you weren't stupid. You knew what you were doing. You sinned. Acknowledge it. When Nathaniel confronted David, you know, he told him the story about the man and the lamb. And David was angry. He said, that man deserves to, to die. Nathaniel said to him, you are the man. David's next words were, I've sinned against the Lord. He didn't say, oh, I was really stupid. Okay? He said, I've sinned against the Lord. Yeah, he got really stupid after he sinned. Did a whole bunch of really foolish things. But that's not why he sinned. He sinned because he didn't keep the lust in his heart under control by dragging it out into the light and giving it to Jesus and asking God to forgive him and cleanse him. He was dealt with, but he was also told, the sword's not going to depart from your house now because of this. And if you read the 
historical books, you realize that happened. There was a lot of trouble in David's life. But David wrote some really beautiful psalms about forgiveness after that. And he walked very, as the old term is, circumspectly, wisely before God. So if you're forgiven, if you're aware of your sin, you have every reason to be thankful for the name of Jesus, your Savior. You're at peace with God now. God has forgiven your sins. He's cast them into the sea of forgetfulness. As far as the east is from the west, he separated you from your sins. He will not remember your sins and your iniquities and your transgressions against you because they were taken away by the blood of Jesus Christ. Praise God. So then he goes on and just finally says, to do good and to communicate or to share, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. That's, I think, what Beza was getting at when he translated the word eucharistoi, thankfulness, uh, by beneficia estote, by saying this is a thankfulness that produces good works and kindness. If you're thankful for forgiveness, for forgiveness, then you ought to be forgiving others. Jesus even said that, remember? For if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. But the idea is that if you forgive others, that shows that you're forgiven. You've got a gracious heart. So our thankfulness ought to extend in kindness to others. May God be pleased to bring that about, make us true worshipers of him, and deliver us from worry and fretting, and make us prayer warriors. Because, oh, by God's glory and by his mercies, we need men and women of prayer. Look at our little church and our struggles. We ought to be, and I, this isn't, I don't have like visions of grandeur. It doesn't matter if I'm here or not. We ought to be the biggest church in Reading, in Shasta County. We've got the truth of God. That doesn't mean we're going to be bigger than others. We want other churches to prosper that are faithful to the word. But, and I, I'm not saying it's, you know, we're really sinning because we're not a big church. That would be, that would be stupid, okay? But we need to pray. I'm delighted, you know, I, I got in trouble one time at a, uh, a synod meeting years ago in a different denomination, but I, because they wanted the annual report, I said, you know, it's really hard to report how many times somebody in my congregation turned away from temptation. I can tell you how many people we had, you know, in church, how many baptisms, confirmations, and how many times the Lord's Supper was served, etc. But I said, the real growth of the church isn't always measured that way. The real growth of the church is when brother or sister so-and-so was tempted, they, they loved God enough to turn away from it. They remembered that they have a Savior who was crucified for their sins. And they go, whoa, what am I, th Lord, deliver me. There are people that prayed before when they thought, that might be difficult. And they start their day with prayer. How do you measure that? I said, you really can't. Some people appreciated what I said, some didn't, all right? But that's a whole other story. But the point is, is that how do we measure growth? So it'd be, and I say, when I say we ought to be the biggest church in Shasta County, let me rephrase that. We ought to be the most thankful church in Shasta County. How's that? That's getting it in perspective. God can fill this place up if he wants to. He can make it smaller if he wants to also. Okay, where two or three are gathered together, Jesus said in my name, I'm there in their midst. All right. But we ought to be the most thankful group of people on earth, not just in Shasta County. May God be pleased to bring that about. And you, because you know what? That thankfulness comes with joy. That thankfulness comes with the power of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean like, well, I'm going to be a super Christian. No, it means you're going to be a grateful, thankful Christian. And that means when you see someone else struggling, your heart's going to go out to them. And you're going to say, Lord, you were so kind to me. You've been so kind to me. Is there some way I can help this brother or sister or this person, this stranger, somebody clearly in need? 
and then be wise about how you do that. You know, you can always go to the deacons and say, I think this person maybe needs help. Can, is there something we as a church can do? Because there are a lot of con artists out there, and you've got to be very careful, okay? But when you have a heart full of compassion, God will protect you. Note the peace of God will keep your heart and mind. God will give you wisdom that comes with that. But again, we ought to be the most thankful people in Shasta County and on earth because of Jesus. Look, we have so much to be thankful for. Here's how much you have to be thankful for. God is giving you eternal life forever and ever and ever and ever and ever so that you can begin to give him adequate thanks. Okay? It's never-ending. The more we learn of his grace and his glory and his goodness and what he has prepared for them that love him, that eye has not seen nor ear heard, we're going to be giving thanks to God for eternity through Jesus Christ and because of our Lord Jesus Christ. So may God be pleased to bring that about. Lord, please bring this about in our lives now. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray now that you'd seal your word to our hearts and minds. Be glorified. Forgive us where we have failed to do what your word commands. And help us, we pray, Lord, to give up anxiety, to give it to you, to cast our cares upon you, and to be anxious for nothing, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, to make our requests known to you. And we ask, Father, that you would bring about the fulfillment of this command, so that the promise given as a, as a fulfillment of that condition would be realized in our lives. So help us, we pray. Let your peace rule in our hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. In, in his precious name we pray, 